Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast today. Um, we're really looking forward to, to today. We are going to look at the Lord's sup, the Lord's Prayer, excuse me. And, uh, you know, this is something we say every Sunday, and yet um, I don't know that we really know all of the biblical depth of it. So this today specifically is Luke 11, uh, verses 1 through 13. Take, us, take it away, Alan. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson does take us into Jesus' teaching about prayer in general, and we also specifically have Luke's version of Jesus' model prayer. I would say that the main emphasis of this whole passage, including the Lord's Prayer, is to teach those who look to God in prayer to look so to do so with humble but really deeply grounded confidence in God's faithfulness and unfailing love for us. And I think it, it, it's, it's sort of about how you pray as much as what you pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're to pray as those addressing a loving Father who knows our needs already and whose intent for us is good and, and not you know, sort of praying in the sense that mm-hmm. we have to beg God to pay attention to us or something like that. And, you know, the the reformers, which I'll talk about later, of course, but they also recognize the model prayer nature of this. And I think sometimes in this world now where people want to be real literalists, don't think they can pray anything else. or mm-hmm. And so I, I they were very aware of the model sure. um, nature. And I think that's clear from Scripture that it is it a is. model. It mm-hmm. is. And yet I think I would say I find... Not only personal value, but I think it helps to define, and we'll get into this later, I think it helps to define what kind of community the church is intended to be mm. when you pray this prayer on a regular basis. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of praying this prayer as often as possible. Right. Well, and, and, and of course, um, we also have a version of it in, in Matthew. Yes, we do. And, and that's where some of the questions come in. Um, now... <laughs> Because they're, you know, we're dealing with Luke's version here, and the Revised Common Lectionary has no place where Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, which is the one we're more likely to be somewhat familiar with, as the gospel reading on Sunday. Uh, it's only used on Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll also compare Matthew's version of the teachings on prayer and on the Lord's Prayer if, um, in this lesson from Luke, uh, including addressing issues in general raised by the Lord's Prayer. So Luke arranges this passage in a unique way, uh, which, you know, <laughs> I feel like a broken record almost now with talking about Luke's uniqueness, mm-hmm. but that's that's just kind of his signature style. And we see this at the outset by the fact that he provides a narrative framework for Jesus' mm-hmm. model prayer. Uh, in Luke 11.1, 1, uh, Luke says, He was praying in a certain place, And after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So, you know, we know that Jesus prays in all the Gospels, but Jesus' habit of praying is a particular theme that Mm -hmm. Luke emphasizes. And you may recall when we looked at Luke's version of the baptism, only Luke tells us that Jesus had his vision of the heavens opened and the Spirit descending to him while he was praying. So um, this this is a theme for Luke. 
And it would make sense then that Luke would base Jesus' teaching about prayer in his own practice of prayer. And this contrasts the setting in Matthew, where Jesus is just teaching his disciples about the proper practice of almsgiving and prayer and fasting, which were the so-called three pillars Mm -hmm. of Judaism, according to Tobit uh, 12.8. And in Matthew, basically, Matthew chapter 6, um, Jesus defines what he calls practicing righteousness in Matthew 6.1 in terms of the proper use of all three of these actions, almsgiving first, and then prayer, and mm-hmm. then after the section on prayer, fasting. And the focus is on a warning against doing them for the sake of being seen. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So that takes us really to this this prayer and and, and gives us some context for the the teaching. Yeah, um, and so Luke's version of Jesus' model prayer is is it may seem a bit lacking to those of us who pray the Lord's prayer on a regular basis, but it's simply Father, may Your name be revered as holy. May Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, mm-hmm. and do not bring us to the time of trial. That's the New Revised. Standard Version mm-hmm. translation of Luke 11, 2 through 4. And it's noticeably shorter than the version of the Lord's Prayer we pray on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Um, there are, I think it's important to note, there are three original forms of the Lord's Prayer in the Christian tradition. This one in Luke chapter 11, Matthew's slightly expanded version in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and the version in the Didache, in Didache 8, 2, likely dated to around the early 2nd century, maybe the mid-2nd century, which mostly reproduces Matthew's version, and it's probably the earliest document to add the threefold doxology, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Some people may be surprised to note that if you go to Matthew 6, 9 through 13, you won't find Mm -hmm. the doxology in the text of most modern English translations. It's not it's not a part of it's not considered to be a part of the original text of Matthew's gospel. It is later added by later manuscripts. Right. But that's probably due to the influence of of the, the, the church tradition. Mm-hmm. I you know, it it does make it does make me wonder and and, and uh the uh, the the reformers are going to recognize this model. They're going to recognize actually that the they believe the Matthew and the Luke and this is this is from the um, the uh, Reformation commentaries uh, may have been two different times that Jesus taught this. Uh-huh. So this was typical. So uh, this idea that that it, there, there's people out there that don't think they should be adding, if you will, that doxology to the end, but it seems to me very much part of the church tradition. It is. And certainly not out of context <laughs> no. with with this prayer. In it fact, is not out of context at all. It, it When you end it, um, the other way, it sounds very um, abrupt. Abrupt, yeah. yeah it absolutely. really doesn't end. And although they do end it there in the Roman Catholic tradition, you notice that the uh, priest goes on and adds on to the prayer. So mm-hmm. it really do- they don't really end it there either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and like I said, I mean, the earliest witness that we can date that we have to this is the Didache in the second century, and that's pretty early on mm-hmm. in the Christian very. tradition. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I have no problem praying the prayer in the traditional way that we mm-hmm. pray it, basically. Now, you know, in, in the mid-20th century, it was in vogue for New Testament scholars who knew Aramaic to try to discover mm-hmm. the original Aramaic, uh, sort of retranslating the Greek back into Aramaic in an effort to to know, you know, the original version of the prayer that Jesus likely spoke, which means recovering what is called the ipsissima verba 
Yesu, mm-hmm. the actual words of Jesus. Right. Part uh, of that that's part of that that historical Jesus historical process. Historical Jesus yeah. process, yeah. absolutely. And you know, um, it's widely recognized now that that's a futile effort because we can only really speculate about mm-hmm. what the original Aramaic might have been. What we have are the Greek versions preserved and interpreted in the gospel tradition and the Didache. And I believe we can be confident that they preserve, uh, they represent the ipsissima vox Jesu, or the, we could say the actual voice of Mm -hmm. Jesus. So the idea is we may or may not have the actual words Jesus prayed, but we can be confident that we have the content of that prayer Mm -hmm. faithfully represented in our gospels and in the church tradition. Yeah. And I think, as I said, the the reformers at least thought that he probably taught this other times, you Mm -hmm. know, that these were capturing what a good prayer should be. So, right. And, you know, it's hard to say one way or the other, you know. Exactly. Uh, That's obviously Jesus, a little bit. Obviously, Jesus prayed more than once. You know, I don't think we, we and, and a lot of people have, no, have, have observed this about some of the parallels that don't quite match up. Well, maybe Jesus um, taught this on more than one occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's absolutely, absolutely no reason why that might not happen. Oftentimes, that kind of observation is 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 motivated more by a harmonizing tendency and wanting everything well, to match up. Of course, that's that's yeah. your that's your uh, reformers right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it doesn't match up perfectly and yet yeah. I think it I think it does provide um, because he was teaching and he's teaching it two different two different groups of people, right? He's teaching once to disciples, once to the crowd, gen- crowd mm-hmm. and that he's teaching this this is a mm-hmm. as this is how you pray. So mm-hmm. I, there's a, there, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. There's a great deal of overlap uh, in this teaching on prayer. Um, so a lot of it is unique to, to Luke, but, but um, you know, for the most part, if we look at the, if we compare, compare the prayers, everything that Luke says is essentially found in the Matthews, right. Matthews version. Right, right. And then the, the later part of the passage we're looking at today is also found in Matthew. Right. So it's, it's hard to say one way or the other. I just, I think, I think we can, I would just say, I think we can be confident that we have the content of the prayer that Jesus yeah, intended I for think us so to pray. T- yeah, 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 that's yeah. fair enough. So uh, moving on, we need to kind of break it down. Right? Yeah, yeah, and so we start with Father, and and in we note that in Luke's gospel, it's just simply Father. It's not our Father who art in heaven. It's just right. simply Father. Right. And uh, in the mid twentieth century, Joachim Jeremias, who was a German New Testament scholar, argued that Jesus was the first in Palestinian Judaism to call Jesus Father using Abba. Uh, in Aramaic with such an intimate form of address. Unfortunately, we have to recognize that this represents an argument from silence. We just don't have the information to be able to Mm -hmm. know. Um, And what we do know, though, is that there is a thorough foundation for the concept of God as Father in the Hebrew Bible. And there's some... I mean, I'm thinking of, of Hosea 11, chapter 1. Um, you know, um, God, through the prophet Hosea, says, when Israel was a child, I taught him how to mm-hmm. walk. You know, yeah, there's a very yeah. tender image there of, of you know, a father, you know, re- reaching out his fingers for a toddler just learning to walk to mm-hmm. hold on to, you know. And so so you know, there, there is this image of God as father that's remarkably tender in the Hebrew Bible. But in, in this setting, I think we can recognize the uniqueness of what Jesus was teaching them. He was teaching them a particular understanding of God as Father, as loving, merciful, generous, kind, and compassionate. And these are all themes in the Hebrew Bible, but I think he gives them a unique emphasis and interpretation in light of how he models those qualities. Um, you know, I think if you, if you 
you know, you see those qualities in the Hebrew Bible, but then you also see things like God is jealous and God's anger right, and right. things like that, you know, um, uh, judgment and punishment. And you have those kinds of themes in the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus kind of lifts the lifts the, the, the loving, merciful, generous, and kind and compassionate out, mostly as the image of God that he's going to focus right, on. Right, right. What I think is really, is really significant, actually. It is. Yeah, it is. yeah. He is reshaping their image of God, Ex- definitely. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so moving on. Yeah. So one of the things we noticed then in comparing Luke's version of the prayer with the others is the combination of striking similarity in wording in the Greek with significant difference. So here Jesus prays, may your name be revered as holy. May your kingdom come. And, and these are the first two petitions in the other two versions that we have as well. Uh, one question we have here is the time frame in which Jesus intended these petitions to be understood. Are the, is he praying that, that God's name be revered as holy and God's kingdom come in the present? Or is he mm-hmm. praying for in the ultimate right. kingdom of right. God? And I'm not sure we're really meant to choose one over the other. Mm-hmm. In one sense, we've seen that the kingdom of God is already present among those who welcome it. And as such, it already brings God's peace and justice and even freedom mm-hmm. to those people who welcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, actually, I'm going to elaborate on that freedom a little bit later when we talk about the part about forgiveness. You know, can I ask about this? I, are there groups out there that are claiming it is one or the other? No, okay. I don't think I don't, so. Okay. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there are scholars who are claiming it is meant to be eschatological. There are some uh, scholars who, who say so that this, is this part is of meant the, to be this is part of the discussion, yeah. Yes, it I is. mean, at least... The, this is dealt with in the Heidelberg Catechism, and, and they're saying no, it doesn't both. I mm-hmm. mean, it doesn't. It, this is mm-hmm. okay either way. So I thought this. I think it makes sense both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. I mean, so from one perspective, we can notice that God's name is either revered as holy or blasphemed in the present tense, based on the conduct of the people who identify themselves with Him, and we see this especially in Ezekiel chapter thirty-six, uh, but other other places in the prophets as well. And so in this way, then praying for God's name to be be revered as holy establishes something of the principle that you shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy is the basis for Christian community, Mm -hmm. which I mean, it originates with the Levitical holiness code in Leviticus chapter 19 Mm -hmm. and other places, but it's also found in 1 Peter 1 16. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I think both of these petitions um, are meant to be you know, the, the, the idea is, you know, may your name be holy, may your kingdom come in and through the community that, that welcomes the kingdom of God, but also ultimately then um, they await the fullness of the kingdom of God at the coming of the Son of Man because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's when God's name will fully be, be um, made holy and that's mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. God's kingdom will fully come. Now, you know... Those of us who are used to praying the Lord's Prayer may say, "Well, wait, you're you're missing something." And and the math, you know, both Matthew and the Didache add, "May your will be done on earth as mm-hmm. it is in heaven," and and I think. You know, I think this may be seen as simply an expansion of the two petitions in Luke. I don't think it's something, it's something really adding something significant in terms of content. May your will be done. May Mm -hmm. your name be made holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. They all sort of refer to, to, to God's purpose, uh, what God is seeking to do in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, however, I would say that the addition of on earth as it is in heaven may lend itself more to an eschatological understanding of the fulfillment than one in the present mm-hmm. day. Because in heaven as on earth, that sounds like 
right, something right. out in the, out in the yeah, future. Yeah. Now, what is clear then is that Matthew's version uh, of these three petitions, along with the Didache, and actually this is also found in the text of Luke 11.2 in Codex Sinaiticus Aleph, which I found to be interesting, yeah, is that the first three petitions are framed in a kind of poetic parallelism, and I'm just going to speak the Greek and just hear the, mm-hmm. po- the, the parallelism here. Hagiasteto ta onomasu, eltheto te basileasu, genetheto ta thelimasu. There's a there's a there's a uh-huh. sort of a poetic parallelism. Yes, absolutely. And so what that means is may your name be made holy, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. All three of these are standing in parallel and in Matthew and in Didache, on earth as it is in heaven applies to all three. Oh, nice. May your name be made yeah. holy on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done right. on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I know all of you could hear that as he read it. But if you look at it too, seeing those same endings and and Sue at the end of all really kind of hits home. I I don't think you would miss this if you saw And actually, if you're looking at the Greek New Testament, I think most Greek New Testaments actually print it that way. They print the three petitions in parallel and then they print the in heaven and as on earth sort of off to the side to indicate this. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really cool. So then the next part of Jesus' prayer builds on this view of God you know, as Mm -hmm. merciful and gracious and kind, established in Jesus' teaching and ministry as encapsulated in the petitions in Luke 11 too, and applies Mm -hmm. them even more concretely to the life of the community of those who welcome the kingdom of God and are shaped, therefore, by their faith in this view of God as a loving Father who not only hears their prayers Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also acts for their good. Yeah, yeah. So the first of these petitions, then, is give us each day in, in, in Luke, it's not give us this day, it's give us each, each day, day. Mm-hmm. our daily bread in Luke eleven three, And this one has created quite a stir in the history of the church's reading of the prayer, not only from Luke, but also the, the petition from mm-hmm. Matthew and the Didache. Mm-hmm. And it's mainly due to the phrase daily bread, and, and the Greek term is epiousios. And that, that's an adjective that is not widely used, mm. and its meaning has been much debated throughout uh, the history of the church. <laughs> and that's one that, you know, if you're doing a, if you're a beginning translator, you're not really going to pick up. You're just going to see what other people have said you're about it. You're just going to go to the lexicon yeah, or the dictionary, yeah. right. And, and so there, there really is a lot of uncertainty around the meaning of that word. Now, three main views have emerged in the history of the church. Um, one is the bread we need for subsistence, and that was mm-hmm. Origen. Um, and he saw it, therefore, as the bread that is meant, that is needed to support mm-hmm. our being or our usion. Mm-hmm. And so epiousios means fo- to support our being or mm-hmm. to support our life. Um, another one is the bread for the current day or our daily bread. Right. And that's John Chrysostom um, and, Vol- and Jer- Jerome in, in the Vulgate translation of Luke's gospel. He uses the um, Latin quotidianum. Mm-hmm. The third one is the bread for the coming day. And mm. that's one that came from Jerome, actually. Um, supposedly, uh, he found this in mm. the Gospel of the Nazareans, in the version of the prayer in the Gospel of the Nazareans. But I'm not really a fan of that last one, the bread for the coming day, because I think it flatly contradicts Jesus' statements elsewhere about worrying about tomorrow. Right, I agree, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Origen, you know, developed his view, I think, based on sort of a questionable um, etymology of the word, trying to trying to break it down to its parts. Oh, mm-hmm. But he also developed his view with reference to the living bread in connection yeah. with the Eucharist. And 
it's interesting to compare that Jerome translates the prayer in Luke with daily bread, but in the, the Vulgate translation of Matthew, it's not give us our daily bread, it's give us our super substantial. The, hmm. the Latin is super substantialum, which means above material substance. In other words, our spiritual food. Give mm-hmm. us our today, and the then this is where the idea came out that you should you should partake of of the sacrament of communion oh, every day. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> but I don't really see that in this prayer. I think it seems most likely that Jesus was simply encouraging his disciples to depend on God for their daily mm-hmm. needs, in the confidence that God would indeed provide mm-hmm. them. I keep, I mean, this is brilliant and interesting. I but I am I am called back a little bit to the idea of the daily the manna. In the mm-hmm. Old Testament. Uh, exactly, exactly. And and a lot of New Testament scholars who 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 emphasize that it's really just this this sense of dependence on God for daily needs. Mm-hmm. They they will liken it to the manna. Okay. They got enough for one day and that was enough and they yep. they learned to depend upon God that way. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're moving on to the next part. Yeah. And so we've already seen in the next petition about forgiveness. We've already seen that forgiveness or release is a major theme in Luke's gospel when we saw the um, his quotation of Isaiah 61 uh, in, in his sermon at Nazareth in Luke 4, 18 and 19. And so the next petition really shouldn't come as a surprise, but what may come as a surprise to us is the way that Luke words it. Uh, now, maybe not to us Presbyterians, because we're used to saying debts and debtors, but to everybody else, it might come as a surprise. Uh, Luke says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the wording in Matthew, which is similar in the Didache, may be even more surprising. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, again, that's not surprising language to those of us in the Presbyterian tradition, but, but those who, who are, you know, have grown up with the language of trespasses may, may be shocked at that. And the mm-hmm. reality is that almost every English translation of both Matthew and um, Luke in the Lord's Prayer used some form of debt or debtors mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. translate, because that's what the word is in Greek. I was going to say, it's, what is the Greek? Yeah, What's the, the closest? It talks about ophilema, and, and that's debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that's a, ophilema is a debt or an obligation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, okay. So both Matthew and Luke use the language of debt mm-hmm. uh, in this, although Luke uh, changes the first one, forgive us our sins, to hamartia. Mm-hmm. And, right. and perhaps he's doing that for his audience. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Although we in the Presbyterian Church aren't surprised at the language of debts and debtors for the forgiveness of sins, I'm not sure we take it as seriously as Jesus <laughs> intended. The good news of release that Jesus announced in his sermon at Nazareth, which, as you recall, Luke reco- relocates at the very outset of his public ministry, is one that is broader than release from the burden of sins. It includes all forms I believe, of freedom, Mm, freedom from subjection to the powers of evil, freedom from diseases of all Mm -hmm. kinds, freedoms from obligations due to the requirements of patronage, Mm. the patron and client relationships that we talked about that were so much the foundation of the Roman world, and freedom from the stigma and barriers created by the whole system of clean and unclean. So Jesus Mm -hmm. brings release in its full sense of the term, the freedom of God's kingdom in its full sense of the term. And of course, forgiveness is 
forgiveness of sins is a part of that. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, forgive us. And, and Luke does focus on that. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Mm-hmm. But I think the forgiven, forgiving of those who are indebted to us or forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors does imply this much broader sense mm-hmm. of, of liberation and release that, that Luke is definitely, is a theme, definite theme in, Ju- in Jesus' ministry in mm-hmm. Luke's gospel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously we were talking here about this debts and debtors that we're comfortable with in a Presbyterian church, but we well know that there's many people out there that are used to the trespasses language and they will tell you it's the correct one. So give us a little Well, history. I mean, the vast majority of Christendom in the English speaking world mm-hmm. uses the, the language of trespasses. So, so we're the only ones that I'm aware of that uses debts and debtors. I, I think so. Or any, anyone that's come out of a, a reformed tradition, um, Maybe, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for us, you know, that is a pressing question, and we get that question, you know, why do we say debts while others say trespasses? And the answer to I frankly, is a historical one. In 1526, William Tyndale translated the New Testament, and he used trespasses Mm -hmm. for the word ophilema, forgive us our trespasses. Mm -hmm. Now, I think... Tyndale may very well have been influenced by the fact that later on in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus follows on and elaborates on his teaching about Mm -hmm. prayers, he says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Mm -hmm. and he uses the word paraptomata, which is for for trespasses, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Right. So maybe and that's so where that it came from. so that may have influenced Tyndale's translation in English of the word mm-hmm. ophilema, which may have been a little bit strange to him. You know, obligations, debts. Why, how, why would he, why would, you know, that, that, I mean, he may not have understood the broader implications of right. that in, in Jesus' ministry. Right, right, right. So a year after he was martyred um, in 1536, Henry VIII then later authorized the Matthews Bible, which included Tyndale's New Testament. Mm -hmm. So Tyndale's New Testament then was authorized by the King of England for use in the Church of England. And then in 1549, when the first Book of Common Prayer was drawn up, Mm -hmm. they used trespasses in, in, in that version of the Lord's Prayer. And basically the influence of that Book of Prayer right. has been so pervasive that that it has influenced almost every English language right. church tradition and ever since. It's kind <laughs> of it, 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 here's the thing though that I don't think folks do realize is that the, the King James versions that came out is using debts and debtors. Yes, indeed. So we're talking about um, a, a, a later date. I, I believe that, uh, you know I, I didn't double check that this just now, but I believe every other English translation says. Debts and debtors. Yeah. Maybe yeah. there may be one or two obscure uh, Geneva, ones here and there. Geneva Bible I checked out. Of course, that's even earlier, but it um, it, it uses debts and debtors. Right. So it's kind of an interesting um, it's kind of an interesting question how then the Roman Catholic Church yeah. of today is still using trespasses when and my theory is it really dates back to the Catholic Counter Reformation. They're beginning to adopt uh, their own stuff in the vernacular to some extent, especially a prayer mm-hmm. that could be said by people. And I think because the Roman Catholic Church in England, as it moved, remember it moved through. We even have right. We even have the um, um, period under Elizabeth the First, where sure. you have both um, both Protestants and Roman Catholics. And I think maybe it just 
developed from there. May have. But I do think it's interesting that the King James Version of the Bible mm-hmm. comes out with dead and debtors. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I think is interesting is that, you know, Latin was was the language of the, the mass church. until until Vatican II. Vatican II, correct. And it could have been by then that, that the that the church in the English speaking lands you know, by then, trespasses was so well established in most well. traditions that they may right. have just decided to adopt. They may that. have, I don't know. because we do know that at least um, if, if you knew anything in a Roman Catholic tradition, um, you probably knew how to say the paternoster mm-hmm. in yeah. in Latin, right. and you may not have ever learned it in English. And that is another question or never thought and um i I think there's more to be digging there maybe someone's done it that i haven't come across or that you haven't come across i haven't yeah uh, yeah, but it would be fascinating to see that it's kind of kind of an interesting little thing but no so friends all of you that have your methodist friends that tell you that it's trespasses um, you could you could use this to right. say no. Point them to point them to the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. Point them to the Gospel of yeah, Luke. Exactly. It says that they, no, they, you know neither one of them says trespasses in the t- in the text of the Lord's Prayer. Right. Matthew's Gospel does say trespasses later on later in the on. explanation, mm-hmm. but but it's not it's 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 debts and debtors, debts and in, debtors. The, in the in the in the text of it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So then the final, final petition in Luke's version is and do not bring us to the time of trial according to the NRSV. Almost every other English translation reads, do not lead us into temptation, or some version of that. And at issue here is the understanding of the Greek word pyresmos, which at times refers to Mm. testing and can be attributed to God, and at times refers to temptation. And there's a great deal of of difficulty surrounding this. Um, One of the, the, I think, most confusing passages is in James chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through about 14 or 15. And, And there James says, if you go through testing... Pyresmos, successfully mm-hmm. rejoice. But anyone who's being tested, pyrasmed, I might paraphrase it to say, uh, should not say I'm being tested or, t- or tempted, pyrasmed by God, because God does not pyrasm or tempt anyone. Right, right, right. So, so bo- the, same, the same Greek word is translated testing and tempting. And so it's like, it's okay for God to test us, but it's not okay for God to tempt us. But in 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 the original Greeks, James is basically saying, "Yeah, God may have you undergo pyrasmos, but God's not going to have you undergo pyrasmos." Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, pyrasmos in the sense of testing versus pyrasmos in the sense of temptation right, right. leading you to sin. Right. So right. the idea is God's not going to lead you into sin. Right. And and I you know I can understand that some may be troubled by even praying this prayer. Do not bring us you know lead us not into temptation. Mm-hmm. You know why do we have to ask God not to tempt us? <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. It is. It is awkward. And and some of you know this has been a big deal in the Roman Catholic tradition and mm. and the current Pope Pope Francis has been advocating and that we change this language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in in English here, yeah. so well, and some translations have followed the new RSV in rendering pyrasmos as the time of trial. And to your point, the New American Bible Revised Edition, mm-hmm. which is a Catholic translation, says the final test. Do not bring oh, us into yes. the final test. Do not bring mm. us into the time of trial. Interesting. And so this places it more in an eschatological context and perhaps may even refer to an apocalyptic concept of the great trial. And mm. this may be what the Pope is, is, is pushing for, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the adoption of, of, of that um, New American Bible uh, version mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to um, temptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think 
it's if, if we look at this from a biblical point of view, it's clear that God tests the faithful from time to time to strengthen them and to prepare them to meet the difficulties that those who are loyal to God in, mm-hmm. will face in this right, life. Right. But it seems unlikely that Jesus meant for his disciples to pray to be pray, spared from this kind of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that... that um, Joel Green says in his commentary, I found that kind of surprising. I would say that in general, this petition reflects the dangers of discipleship and expresses a dependence upon God's care to be able to endure. You know, despite their devotion to the kingdom, they're going to fall short. We might right. say, despite our devotion to the kingdom, we will fall short and we must all rely on God's grace. Right, right, right. Now, again, um, one of the things I think we should note that... Um, and we may have noted, we should have noted this above in terms of death, debts and debtors and trespasses and trespassers, is that the those who know the release that God has given them will extend that same generosity to others, but we should not see God's forgiveness as a kind of a quid pro quo for our forgiveness and others. In other mm-hmm. words, we don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. Mm-hmm. We, have yeah. to put the, we have to put the emphasis in the right place. Right, right, right. Yeah. Deep breath, because now we have a little, uh, like a lesson attached to this. A couple of lessons, actually, a couple of object lessons. And so the next part of the lesson is unique to Luke. It relates to a life situation that's meant to illustrate the point, stressed throughout, that we've already seen, that we can pray to God in the assurance that God knows our needs and delights in our welfare. And so the situation is one in which a man receives guests at midnight and the bands of hospitality require him to offer them a meal. But because he has nothing to feed them, he asks his neighbor who would also be bound by hospitality for food. The very idea that a neighbor would refuse such a request is absurd. And so Jesus says, because of his shamelessness, he will get up. In other words, the, the friend will give up and give him, get up and give him whatever he needs. And so the phrase diatain anaidayan autu is translated with wide variety because of his importunity, because of his impudence, because of his shameless persistence, or simply persistence. Mm-hmm. But the word really just simply means because of his shamelessness. Hmm. And so if you translate it more literally, because of his shamelessness, it, it's a str- it seems like a strange shame mm-hmm. statement because it seems to say the opposite of what is meant. Yeah. You know, what is yeah. meant is that the obligation of honor will compel the neighbor to extend hospitality, help extend hospitality mm-hmm. to the guests. And and so the motivating factor is that, you know, he, he won't want to bring shame upon his house by refusing such right, hospitality. Right. So, but, but the idea of this object lesson basically is that people, if people can be relied upon to act generously, how much right. more can God? Right, right. And so moving on, we have another example here. Yep. And so the next section of the passage, which is parallel in Matthew chapter 7, by mm-hmm. the way, Jesus elaborates for them on uh, further on the approach toward praying that he's laid out in his model prayer. Uh, we're to pray in the assurance that when we ask, it will be given. Mm-hmm. When we seek, we will find. When we knock, the door will be opened. And the almost shocking statement in verse 10 is that for everyone, who asks, receives, and everyone who searches, Mm -hmm. finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, I don't believe that's meant as a kind of carte blanche. You know, we can pray for whatever we want to, right? right? But again, it's, I think it's meant to engender confidence that God knows Mm -hmm. our needs, cares about them, and delights in providing for our well-being. That's the point of this. Right. And by the way, this is my favorite passage. It's, it's a wonderful it's, it's a it's, wonderful promise it is and it, it gives me personally a lot of comfort so yeah, I, I I really I've leaned into this this is what I tell people I usually tell them the Matthew version but you know mm-hmm. it's that this is really 
uh, as I said, just really central to um, my faith. So Well, and I think it's central to, I mean, the, again, the whole point of this is how do we approach God and how mm-hmm. do we envision God? Do we envision God as sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, with, with right. God, if we say the wrong thing, God might just strike us? Or do we envision God as as a loving and caring parent who, who right. knows our needs, cares about our needs, you know, delights in meeting our needs and, and delights in uh, seeing to our well-being, you know? Now, you know, the, we that may not always work out the way we expect it to, and we perhaps we can talk about that uh, later. But um, but nevertheless, that is the that is the sense that Jesus is trying to engender here. Yep. That this is how we pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, then moving on. So yeah. Then we have one last comparison between God and human behavior, and it's similar to the previous one. He says basically, Jesus says basically, no parent will deny a child's request for something as basic as food nor would they substitute something harmful in its place. And again, mm-hmm. Jesus is talking about the norm. Yeah, here. right, of course. I mean, obviously, we, we probably all know of some episode of an abusive parent who, you know, violated this. But he's talking about, you know, normal human beings. They're not going to deny a child's basic request right. for food. Correct. So the conclusion in, in Luke then is, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And again, the point here is to reinforce confidence in God's grace, mercy, and love to provide for our needs. Now, you, you may have heard that last statement from Luke and thought, wait, isn't it supposed to be something different? Because in Matthew's version, it says that God will give good things to those who ask mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. And Luke says God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Um, and I think Matthew's Aunt Matthew's version kind of suits the situation a little better. Mm-hmm. But um, Luke's version, I think, is perhaps creating a promise that carries forward to the best gift of all, which is, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, the one who sustains us, you know, in all, in all ways. And that will be fulfilled in the book mm-hmm. of Acts. So perhaps, perhaps in Luke's right. version, Luke is creating a kind of narrative tie-in, sort of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Yeah. In the book of Acts oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. That yeah. makes, well, again, we often look at those as combined, yeah. combined uh, message. So, yeah. okay. So let's, you know, at the end of the day, what do we make of this? Well, again, I think the purpose of this prayer in Jesus' ministry, as well as the purpose of Jesus' teaching and prayer, not only in his ministry, in the context of Luke's community, as well as in this, our setting today, is to shape the community of disciples mm-hmm. with a particular understanding of who God is and what God is doing in our world. And in other words, how we approach God in prayer is is determined by how we view God. Mm-hmm. And so it makes a difference if we approach God as a loving Father who knows our needs, cares about our needs, delights in seeing to our well-being, as opposed to praying to God as with, with sort of fear and trembling that, well, I don't want to ask you this because right. you might get mad at me and you might right. you might right. zap me, you know, and punish me. Yeah, this, right. You know, that's a very <laughs> right. different way of praying. Yeah, I agree. Yes. So yes. Pray, praying with this kind of confidence is meant to, sh- not, not only praying with this kind of confidence, but praying this prayer, I think, mm-hmm. with this kind of confidence is meant to shape the lives of those who practice this discipline in a way that they display God's generosity mm-hmm. to I others. I agree. And thus reveal the presence of the kingdom of God among them. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Hi, friends. We're back. And given the fact that we uh, we ran kind of long in our first segment, we're going to do this second segment. And Christy's going to take us through uh, some of the uh, confessional materials and the Reformed tradition and how the Lord's Prayer was used there. And we may we may have some general reflections to, to, to wrap it up, but um, we're, we're just going to do two segments today. So just want to give you a heads up about that. So Christy, tell us what you found in the, in the confessions. Sure, sure. And I decided today just to look at the treatment of the Lord's Prayer in our Book of Confessions. Um, and this is because when we think about our Book of Confessions, we have, you know, we have the ancient confessions, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and then we have really the Reformation era, era confessions. There's really not a lot of confessional activity um, in between this time, and, and, and this really puts out who we are as a Reformed church. And then we have some, some modern-day confessions. So we're going to look at those reformed confessions. And just to refresh your mind, this includes the Scots Creeds, the Second Helvetic, the Westminster Confessions, and the the, the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, But um, I think it might be important before we dig into how they treat the Lord's Prayer um, to remind what the confessions mean to our tradition. And as you all know, we're Presbyterians are reformed and continue to reform. So these confessions act as a witness to the reforming nature of our faith. We accept fully the ancient creeds of the church, and then we see the Reformation era confessions and finally the modern era ones. Um, And I think that we've seen even in this podcast the influence of the Reformation era on our modern church and yet, we also see in these confessions positions that are rooted within the limitations of the early modern period. Um, for example, for the positions on, on women, for their understanding of the broader world. Um, one, in particular, is these, these Reformation-era confessions have a lack of emphasis on mission. Mm-hmm. And um, some, people, some people identify that, and yet, at the same time, you have to look at that time frame the overseas expansion is just beginning well their worldview wasn't wasn't didn't include the whole big world exactly at that point in time. Yeah. exactly in fact it's even it's even restricted some i mean we know that they are aware of course of the of of like the muslims but they don't really know anything about mm-hmm. them um mm-hmm. they're they're they remember the 1492 of yeah. which alan you know we, we talk about a lot but you all remember the little verse you know in 1492 columbus sailed the ocean blue blah but it also was the time when um, the Muslims were kicked out of Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, so were the Jews. Mm-hmm. So you've got this, um, there's some Jews in, in free cities, but you've got this time period uh, where, you know, 16th century overseas expansion is just kind of beginning. Right. And you're just starting to encounter these folks. And there's a beginning of a call to send send out the faith to them, but they don't really know... Well, I mean, the, the colony in Jamestown was only just founded, you know, in, I guess it wasn't even, no, it wasn't even right. founded, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, the colony in Jamestown wasn't even founded yet. So mm-hmm. there wasn't even a Western, I mean, the the the, 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 the colonial expansion of the, the Portuguese and the, and, the, and the Spanish powers may have begun, right. but the colonial expansion of the, of the, of the right. English-speaking um, peoples had not yet even started. Right, yet. right. And and you also have to think about they are still living in a vision of Christendom. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that vision of Christendom was the kind of care for neighbor, but it was a different kind of care for neighbor because everyone is Christian and everyone is under church and state as one. We've talked about that. So this kind of modern mission space is not mm-hmm. in these confessions. Okay. Right. You know, one of the things I just wanted to say about our book of confessions is... Um, 
you know, coming coming as uh, living in the Baptist world for all right. those days, you know, they 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 had a Baptist they had a conf- statement of faith, but there, a lot of people said, "I don't believe in a creed. My only creed is the Bible," right. which really is kind of disingenuous right, because right. because the Bible is not self uh, self interpreting and self evident. Everybody has an interpretive framework, exactly, and the yeah. confession spells out the interpretive framework. Absolutely. But what, what I love about our approach to the confessions is that we do include the ancient confessions. Mm-hmm. We also include the Reformed Era confessions, and we include the modern confessions right, because right. we do want to bear witness right. to this idea of the church reformed and always being reformed exactly. according to the Word of God. Well, and it does also give us the possibility then when new things, and we always think new things don't come our way, but you know, I, I, I visualize a world where we may run into sentient beings on other 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 planets. Mm-hmm. Our God, our mm-hmm. understanding of God is big enough to handle that, yeah. and and our reforming yeah. tradition does. Um, but well, and the other thing is that we can we can look at those earlier statements of faith. We don't have to take them as literal word for word authority. Mm-hmm. We can look at them as statements from that time, exactly. from that place, from exactly. that culture, and that and that while they they have they, they they benefit us, they're also limited, right, in terms of their their time and their culture. But they do for me. They really tie me back into this faith that mm-hmm. has that continues to to look for after and care and bring together and and really the things that we think of as being central to um to central to who we are going out caring for others um um justice of god love mm-hmm. of god hope all these things are embedded in the christian faith and sure. and that pushes through sure so um, anyway, he, Alan kind of already jumped in on to all churches really have some kind of yes. uh, statement of faith. And, and if you go look at their websites, you find that even if they say they're a Bible church, they're going to tell you what we believe. Yes, and that's, that's right. what our confessions do. That's right. Um, and um, they do, they provide us with a lens on how the church is called to service and belief, being true to scripture and yet steeped within the changing reality of human experience. Um and what it, as we said before already, it, it speaks to us uniquely in different times and different places, uniting us to Christ and to one another. So all this said, all this background, it gives us a chance to walk into the Lord's Prayer. Um, note um, um, that, these, that these aren't really part of the ancient creeds. For example, mm-hmm. the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Um, some of them bring the Apostles' Creed into their discussions within the context of these later confessions and or catechisms. But we do know that the Lord's Prayer was used in an ancient church. Um, and it was used for as a piece for catechumens to memorize. Some of those folks were not literate, so um, they would. this is one of the things they could memorize. Um, and so it was essential in the transmission of the faith early on. It's one of those few things you would teach yourself. You'd be able to you'd be taught. You'd be able to, to recite. You'd be able to pray. Um, and all the Reformation era um, confessions recognize the importance of the Lord's Prayer, um, but not all of them expound on it. Mm-hmm. Some of them will just mention that in, in their kind of in their introduction that this is important. Um, the catechisms are the best um, at this longer in- interpretation of the Lord's Prayer that um, include the Heidelberg Catechism and the smaller are shorter and um, longer catechisms from the Westminster Confessions, mm-hmm. right? We have the Westminster Standards, and a lot of us talk about the Westminster Confession, which is part of it, but so are these two catechisms. Yep. Yep. 
Um, So the Heidelberg Confession, which is older, um, is in 1563. And this this, um, catechism is written um, by um, the elector Frederick III of the Palatinate. And the Palatinate had gotten, um, had become particularly reformed. And so he was trying to basically find a confession that he could um, bring to the Holy Roman Emperor and suggesting that they that they counted they weren't doing things that were offensive um, and there is some um, there is some some language in here that that helps kind of um, that, that instead of that helps kind of um, when you're talking about the Lord's Supper later on that that, that kind of allows this to um, to for the Roman Catholics and the and the and the reform to actually be on a similar page. Oh, really? So it has some of the huh. um, reconciling language in it in this really? particular catechism. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is a catechism. It's a question and answer type of confession. Um, and in a space, it's used as a model prayer and frankly, the basis for how should we should pray. This is stated right in there. Sure. Um, it's um, both prayer is both Thanksgiving and the means by which we communicate with God. And in here is one where we see this kind of unique Reformed theology is that this is a prayer from our depravity. And so as this is expounding, it's talking about this, this the depravity. And it, it, it states, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves to God's majestic presence. Mm. Total, total depravity. Yeah. Not so much... Um, not so clear as it's going to be later on, but there is that basic language, mm-hmm. that sense that we have to rely on God for everything. Two, we also recognize in this the sovereignty of God and in and th- and this that we, as God's children, must respond to the call to pray. Mm. Um, and three, God's love, that God will listen to our prayer. And we just talked about that. Yeah. Um, which sometimes, and I'll talk about, isn't as clear, and, and especially as you get to the Westminster ones, that mm. the love of God, it, it's there, but it seems to be it seems to be pushed down mm. over this kind of commandment sense. I'll, I'll read a couple of huh, those later. Um, and Scripture that God has revealed God's self through Scripture, God's witness to us, and the f- confession goes on further to analyze each segment of the prayer. And I wanted to highlight a few. One, why did Christ? command us to call God our Father. And this is something, again, that Heidelberg is dealing with. According to the Catechism, this is to create a parent-child relationship, reminding us that a parent provides everything for us. Um, and I thought this was beautiful. Not father, father-child. Father-son. Father-son, yeah. but parent. And so that I, I don't think this had any... Um, any desire to be a gender affirming thing specifically, but I right. was impressed that it said parent. Um, the catechism, as I said, actually says parent instead of father. Um, mm. So again, I think it, perhaps though it was a reminder that um, that there were there were women and that um, and women were also call, called to be in and involved in the church and part of God's ch- chosen. And I think sometimes that was really underplayed mm. so yeah. um, again it wasn't obvious but it, but this was a definite choice of words the second point i found interesting was in the response to the second petition your kingdom come that the catechism claims that this is to preserve the church and make it grow 
So this is um, not only to reject evil and those things that corrupt, but also has an outward call of responsibility. Absolutely a Reformation era type instruction. It relates to the priesthood of all believers. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating that, that, you know, I wouldn't think of your kingdom come as preserve your church and make it grow. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it's almost it's almost in that Christendom mind frame where the church is the kingdom and the kingdom is the church. Mm-hmm. And and for me, the kingdom of God is something much bigger than, than yeah. the church. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean I think that reflects the the thinking of that time frame as you were saying. I mean that's what that's the that was their word. Right, view. right, exactly. Uh, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And third, salvation by grace is reflected in response to the fifth petition, which is forgive us our debts. Here the catechism reads, quote, forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. Mm. In other words, we can forgive only because we are recipients of God's grace. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. and that, and that kind of echoes what I was saying about getting getting it getting the emphasis in the right place it's it, we forgive because god has forgiven us we don't forgive in order for god to forgive us right exactly exactly so now i shift to the westminster confessions and so these are about 100 years later um in 1646 and i think what's interesting is by this time you have a very divided Europe. By this time, you have also this era of confessionalization where people, you're not going to see some of that um, some of that reconciling language mm-hmm. that you saw in the Heidelberg Confession. I mean, you were really here making these kind of clear, this is what a Reformed um, tradition is. Um, over against a Lutheran tradition. Right. Over- well, I, I should say this. And we should back up a moment. There is kind of a bit of, if you know the history of this, um, the Westminster Confessions go through, it's adopted by the Covenanters, which those are those folks that are breaking away from the um, from the, the English monarchy who, mm-hmm. are, who are determined to be Roman Catholic. And so mm-hmm. you're going to move into the English Civil War here. And so these are folks that include the Scottish Church, which is already pretty much broken away. Um, and, of course, our Presbyterian tradition comes there. But they are working in England then with all of these folks that are trying to pull away. Mm-hmm. So the, the Scots are really are really easily affirming of all these things. But the Covenanters come in and they have some other little pieces of agenda that they want to push through. So there are a few little differences there, but it's still a very reformed, and that was the center there, still very much reformed. They're not dealing with Lutheran, and they're certainly going to be very anti-Catholic, which you still see in this confession. Well, and I think it's important to note that, you know, um, our parents' generation, the the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Shorter Catechism was what they learned right. for 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 confirmation. Absolutely, and well, that was what they memorized. And think about this too: how many Westminster Presbyterian yeah, churches are exactly. all over the place? That reflects I mean, that, right? you know, we're in the middle of everything here in Nebraska, and there's a, a Westminster Lincoln, there's a Westminster Omaha, right. you know, and if you can find that all over, and yeah. they're 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 looking to this confession mm-hmm. as the space of it. So. Um, I mean that was the confession. Of it was the, the confession of the church, church. Yeah. and and you know if you get Google online too, you can find folks that are still they're still digging into that and saying, well, we're not true to the Westminster Confessions, but I think you have to put it within the same, um, the same voice as you do, in the same historical right. framework that you do the other confessions. Yeah. You can't you can't really apply it fully today without looking at its kind of historical it's not limitations. Not meant to be absolutized. Uh, it, well. Some people would think so. Okay. So um, 
Anyway, it's within this, uh, these Westminster standards. There's a shorter catechism, which has the same purpose as the Heidelberg one. These are really designed, um, they're supposed to be a little bit simpler, a little bit shorter, a little bit um, easier to, to memorize. And I would argue that it has the same Reformed tone as the Heidelberg Confession, but I think it reflects that decades-long battle of the Reformation. Mm. The responses are shorter, and they seem a little harsher. Mm. Um, I think they emphasize the sovereignty of God, and while they don't specifically respond to the elect, it seems that these responses um, to the Lord's Prayer have that in mind. Um, for example, um, the second petition, it says, quote, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it. Mm. So this kind of... There's an edginess there's to an that. There's an edginess yeah. to it. And yeah. here's another one. Um, um, this, is the, this is the third petition. Um, it's, it reads, quote, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, mm. as the angels do in heaven. Wow. Um, now, there's a longer catechism, which is also part of the Westminster Standards, which I think has a softer tone. Um, now, this is designed um, more for pastors to use from the pulpit, um, but it, too, has a focus on the Lord's Prayer. Um, and it, it, it emphasizes the use of the Lord's prayer as direction for other prayer, as well as acts as a prayer in its own right, which mm -hmm. is what we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, and this one really emphasizes the sovereignty of God, total, total depravity, as I said, but has a gentler tone than the shorter cat catechism. So let me read the first petition in this case. Um, in the first petition, which is hallowed to be thy name, acknowledging the utter inability and indisposition that is ourselves and all men to honor God aright, we pray that God would by his grace enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and to highly esteem him, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by, and to glorify him in thought, word, and deed, that he would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him, and by his overruling providence, direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. Mm, yeah, that does seem seem a little less harsh. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the second petition is the same way. But I think when you are a, a, a person memorizing a catechism, mm -hmm. and you're memorizing those harsher no, tones, it yeah. really... I'm not so sure that the, the gentleness that is really meant in this comes through. Mm -hmm. it, and I mm -hmm. think it impacts, I really do think it impacts our earlier churches and yeah. this kind of Puritan yeah. tradition that's going to come over here. Yeah. Because this catechism is going to be adopted by the UCC, obviously, right? Well, it's a very defensive thing. You know, pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got the kingdom of grace in there, right? Right. But, but, but you start off with the kingdom of that Satan's kingdom be destroyed. Right, and, you exactly. Know, I've always maintained yeah. that where you start theologically makes a big difference in how you wind up, whether you, whether you have a theology of grace or not. If you're starting from a perspective exactly. of, of the, the power of evil in the world or sin yeah. or depravity, if that's your starting point, you know, that's going to affect how you, how you frame God's grace. Exactly, exactly. So. So it, it's one of those things, um, um, you know, I think we always have this vision that as these things come down to us, they, they're going to be understood within the context of the person that wrote it, but that's not necessarily how it's interpreted. Mm -hmm. And I do think it probably has led to some of our, our reputation over the year, um, and, um, and, and, and made people folk. And then of course, you know, I always, I always hit on a synod of Dort, but they're so harsh over mm -hmm. there that we really get this reputation of, 
of frozen chosen kind of mentality. Sure. Um, anyway, um, moving to one of the other questions they dealt with is the lead us not into temptation, which is what we just talked about with Alan. Um, but here I thought it was interesting. Um, they viewed this as a response to the sovereignty of God issue, that the entire purview of God's power is indeed evil and that we can be tempted in um, our human condition. So in other words, God's in charge of everything. That's, that mm. Evil isn't coming from a separate thing. Interesting. And so, so, that, so evil comes from God as well as good. Yeah, so yeah. that God's providence will prevail and that we might be freed from sin and temptation and all evil forever. That's a mm. quote. Yeah. So in the end, on the end, God's providence will prevail. But for now, evil comes from God. Evil, could, yeah. That's so interesting. kind of an interesting yeah. space there. <laughs> but again, they're pushing on sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. The evil doesn't have its own origin. So, um, and that as fallen people, we can be tempted. And if that tempted isn't coming from Satan, because that would make a dualistic world, right. then there's somehow that God can be in that space. I thought that right. was interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. So, I think. You know, all of this background can take away that the Lord's Prayer is central to our faith from the early church until today. Um, However, even though it seems like a clear and obvious instruction by Jesus, there are nuances of meaning and interpretation that come through both the confessions and our culture. And therefore, it is important to visit and study this prayer on its own understanding and and for what it means of to our faith today. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. You know, I, I've said, I've I said before earlier, you know, I, I, I believe in praying the Lord's prayer as much as possible. Um, and, you know, as a, as a person making my own faith journey, you know, there have been times when frankly, I have been done with the church. I have been mm-hmm. tired of the church and I have thought, you know, why am I here? Right. And, you know, many, many years ago when I was going through one of those periods of time, um, we were praying the Lord's Prayer in worship, and it mm-hmm. just kind of hit me. Where else in this culture do I have the opportunity to pray this prayer with other people? Yeah, yeah, and true, true, good point. I, you know, so I value that. I value, I don't, yeah. I, you know, the sad thing is I don't think that most people who are praying the prayer really reflect on some of the depth of the oh, nuances that we're talking about. I don't think about. so. They just they just pray it right. by rote, you know, but but I I still I love the prayer and I and I I do um, believe that it was intended to shape our lives. Oh, and absolutely! Shape our community. You know, there's um so Gary Neil Hansen did a wonderful mm-hmm. book on kneeling with the giants, yep. how to how to pray, and he actually covers L- Martin Luther goes into a very long exposition mm-hmm. on praying each one of these petitions can right. in itself be its own lengthy prayer. And he encourages this as a prayer discipline mm-hmm. to kind of meditate and process through what each one means. Some of the things we pulled out today. Now I right. didn't bring out Luther today. That was another option, but, um, you know, th- reminding us really of the depth of the prayer of, of what these individual petitions mean. And I, I think we found some beautiful things today that I wasn't aware of, you know, this parallelism in the Greek was, really eye-opening for mm-hmm. me so mm-hmm. um anyway i hope i, I hope this helps everybody i do too and I, I hope we come away just with this idea this theme of you know we're we're praying to god as a as a loving parent who cares for our needs and and um uh, knows our needs before we ask and delights in in our well-being you know that's mm-hmm. that's an that's the key pres- i think that's the key presupposition of this whole passage mm-hmm. i do too yeah thanks, thanks. christy
That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.